Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good news, Uruguay pulled off a miracle in the 89th minute. I know Judd had Uruguay in his World Cup bracket today. Oh, over I'm so Egypt. excited by that match. Really it was de- just great to really watch. depressing for the Egyptians. Uh, all right, Miguel Sano, let's talk about it. Ding, ding. When your offense uh, is not producing much, uh, you know, everything becomes a little bit more critical. Your margin of error on the mounds, smaller. Uh, it's tough to win one nothing games on the road, all those type of things. Lose a series is tough when you get the pitching that we did the last couple of days. Happy trails to you. No swings and misses. He goes. Swing and a miss. He got him. Paul, third strike. And Sano slams his bat down. He's done for the day. Wow. Who cares about the clouds? I felt like this was... Headed toward a demotion of some kind. I'm not sure if either one of us thought single A all the way down the ladder to rebuild everything oh, was I, on the menu. Cer- I certainly did not. But yeah. but that being said, I absolutely love it. This was the smartest possible thing. This was this was taking into account that they came to the realization that this had nothing to do with 2018. This had to do with one thing: saving Miguel Sano's career. This is a Hail Mary pass, potentially, I guess, to try and and not turn around his swing, but turn around his swing, his lifestyle, everything. Yeah. Well, here here's the comparable that a lot of people are making. I, I remember this when it happened vividly. I just remember how bad this guy was in, in the early two, or 2000 was the year that he was awful. Roy Halladay, and this is not an apples to apples comparison, but it's the closest thing, if you're a hopeful Twins fan, it's the closest thing you can compare here. In 2000, Roy Halladay, who had already been in the big leagues for parts of three seasons, and he was 23, 24 years old at that point, he had a 10.64 ERA in 19 games. Just to, it, This is all across the 2000 season. 13 of those were starts, so he started almost half the season and had the worst ERA in the history of the major leagues for any pitcher with at least 50 innings pitched. That's where he was at even with all the talent, obviously, you know what happened with him. And as a result, he was demoted all the way to single A to start the 2001 season. Rebuilt his entire delivery, started working with a sports psychologist, and then became one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Yep. Now, I don't know if Miguel Sano or any player, I mean, has the same inner drive and legendary work ethic as a Roy Halladay does, but um, that would be if you're looking for... Okay, two guys who have all the potential in the world, and they just can't get out of their own way. And for Halliday, it was different reasons. Yeah. Uh, 
he went down, climbed the ladder after being in the major leagues for a few years from single A all the way up and then became a Hall of Famer. So the story will be written when it comes to Miguel Sano. We'll see. Unfortunately, I think the comp I think the comp to Roy on the Twins might be and this would be coming up in future weeks and months, Byron Buxton. Because you're talking about two guys that work incredibly hard who probably had mental issues that had to be fixed in, in their approach to the game of baseball, but there was never a doubt in both those cases that they both care a lot. Miguel Sano, you're talking about sending him to to the spring training complex with the academy there. Uh, as much to get his life right. He's going to come back if if and when he comes back here, and it might be September 1, it might be 2019, you know, he's going to hopefully, for his sake and the Twins' sake, look completely different, mm-hmm. uh, have an a- attitude that shows that he cares. You know, I'm tired about this whole thing about being, being told, well, you don't get it, he cares. Everything about his approach says, no, he doesn't care. So this is just an interesting move. In the sense that I think the twins sat down and said, this isn't about a fix here. This is about a, an overhaul of how someone with tremendous talent approaches a profession that right now, on every level, basically, they're not taken seriously. Yeah, well, actually, Mike Berardino, I don't think he's covering the series because our guy Murph is out there, but he's beat writer for the Pioneer Press. He sent out an anecdote on Twitter that was pretty telling. And before I throw this anecdote out, Sano does remind me a lot of Aaron Hicks in that Aaron Hicks had all this talent. He was a first-round pick, and he put up numbers in the minor leagues, and then he showed up to the major leagues and had no idea who was pitching on any given day. And Ron Gardenhire called him out, aired him out publicly, walked into Garden, and part of this is organizational, too. He walked into Gardenhire's office one day and said, I'm just going to hit right-handed. I'm good. I'm not a switch hitter anymore. I'm just going to hit right-handed. And they played like, what? Him. And then, like, the organization, yeah, they, they decide, okay, let's, we'll send you out there against you, Darvish. So, Berardino was observing in the clubhouse last Saturday at the end of the Twins' lengthy homestand. The Angels were in town. And this, so, this is the Saturday game before there was a four-hour rain delay. So, they didn't know that there was going to be a, a four-hour delay before they actually faced the starting pitcher. Sano walks up to the lineup card 90 minutes before the game and looks at it and says, oh, le- lefty starter, huh? So, looks at looks at... Yep. The opposing team starter yeah. on the yep. list. Had no idea. And uh, Tyler Skaggs, I believe, was the starter. And said, oh, le- lefty starter, huh? Kind of, okay, I'm just gathering this information for the first time 90 minutes before first pitch. Essentially revealing in that moment that he does zero prep before games or series to study who the opposing pitchers are. And, and Berardini even included that he incorrectly said a different pitcher's name mm-hmm. who was like right-handed or something and Sano didn't correct him and like had like had no idea and who the no starting idea, pitcher yes. was yeah yeah so and that's the type of stuff if you have everyone has some level of great talent there's a lot of first and second round picks a lot of stud college players who play in the SEC a lot of guys who dominated Dominican leagues and Venezuelan leagues and Puerto Rico so everyone has talent some guys roll in and have studied for three days who that series pitchers are going to be. Some guys roll in 90 minutes before first pitch and are kind of like, oh, all right, left-handed pitcher on the mound. And uh, that's going to be something that you have to clean up if you want to be one of the best hitters in baseball, as Miguel Sano has the potential to be. He's got the talent to be one of the best hitters in baseball. Definitely, and you could tell it, it was dire in the last few days, including yesterday, when when the Twins are down three one late in the game and they don't even pinch hit him, he he was he had become and that's why I kept saying you he can't be here. He was unusable. Mm-hmm. He was unplayable. He he's too big. 
He his his approach at the plate. There are just so many things that that they're going to to now have to fix, and and that's why I go back to it doesn't matter when he comes back. What matters is when he comes back, is he fixed in a lot of, of ways? And and this, by the way, also if this works, this speaks to an idea I think that you brought up a month back or so, and that is 2019 opening day. If Miguel Sano is here and you have a semblance of a player who you deem to be fixed, Adrian Beltre should be here too. Adrian or somebody like that. This guy needs Free to. Agent. This guy needs to be. Miguel Sano should play first base, and you need to get him on the right track. And I think part of that, at least, goes in getting somebody who he can trust completely, who he can go to. If if this starts to go down the right path, the worst thing that you could possibly do is say, "Okay, he's fixed. He's fine. Let's bring him back up," and that's it. I think the next step has to be who can we get to babysit him for at least a year and to be a confidant and to be a guy that he can go to. Well, I guess my question would be, if Sano's on the team and Manny Machado's on the team, what position would Beltre play? Third base. Machado's your shortstop. Oh, okay. It all works out fine. It's no problem. Well, where's Royce Lewis going to play at the end of the year when he comes up as a 20-year-old? Well, he can play some second base, too. I mean, yeah, oh, come this on. Is a, this is it's an so embarrassment well, of riches. It, it really it's is. an embarrassment yeah. of riches. Don't, don't you think at this point, now that they're seven games below 500, and as you pointed out before the show, Lance Lynn has gotten his... Stuff yeah. together to some extent to the point where you could probably trade him. If you were going to go any further than last year, like let's go back to the beginning of the season. Let's say your goal was to get back to where you were or go further. It 100% required a full productive season from both Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano. Yep. And so obviously if you take those guys have given you almost nothing so far this year, and that's why you're seven games below 500. And there's some other reasons, too. But if those guys were playing at their peak capabilities, the way that Buxton did the second half last year and the way that Snow did the first half, and you get a full year of that, you would be far better than seven games below 500. You'd be above 500 right now. Right. Well, Snow's not coming back anytime soon, right? The soonest he would come back is, what, three weeks from now? And that would be a real That'd fast really, track. Yeah. My best, my best guess is he spends at least a week in Fort Myers, maybe even longer, and then another week or two. This is best case scenario, and then another week or two if he skips to AAA. But I think post All Star break is probably more realistic for him. Yeah, I'm not and, concerned about and it. And Buxton, like Buxton, is just now running in the outfield, and the All Star break is is a month away. I think they're both post All Star break guys. Best case scenario. Mm-hmm. So. Another month without two guys who are supposed to help carry you to the playoffs, at least a wild card game, or maybe flirt with the division. I'm out on this season now. If I, if I know you've been out for a while, but like I was kind of let's wait and see, see what happens. It's a weak division. I'm. It's everything that could go wrong has gone wrong for them this year. It is what it is. Now you start to look for. Hey, if somebody wants Lance Lynn, if they look at him and say, hey, you've been pretty good your last five starts, yep. I, you pick up the phone today. Like, you just start making those phone calls. Last five starts uh, for Lynn, 2.01 ERA, 195 batting average against by opponents, 12 walks, 30 strikeouts. He's been really good, and he's tradable now. Um, the thing that I think about Buxton and Sano as we look at this, the situation that's presented in front of us is 2018 now is about fixing them. And about, and I am not completely buying that Buxton's bad toe w- was attributable to all his problems at the plate. I think no. there's some fixing that definitely needs to be uh, done with him as well. So I don't care where they do it. I don't care if it's at Fort Myers or at Rochester. But 2018, if I'm the Twins, is all about making a decision on these two and fixing them as best 
that I can. So when they show up for spring training in 2019, they are as close to being they're close to being as prepared to play a complete season as I can yeah. possibly have them. But you know what the unsettling part is, even if they both come back and play really well in the second half, you're still going to go into 2019 thinking all right, are we sure they can put together a full season? Most definitely. Because neither one of them has put together a full season. And by full season, I don't need 160 games healthy. You can go on the DL. Like, how about 140 games from both of them productive? A, a full, or you're not batting 095 for two months like Byron Buxton, and you're not injured for half the season, but a, 140 plus games, mostly productive for six months. And we're going to go into 2019, the oh, two most know. important players in the franchise, sure. and we're not going to know. By the way, Tiger Woods, back to plus seven. Little birdie on that I, last hole. I came six so, one twenty feet beneath the hole here. Part I three. came so close with my first round prediction for Tiger. I think I said nine over. He was eight. I was so close. Well, Very upset. Golf isn't horseshoes and hand grenades, Judd. I was almost the golf whisperer. Golf is about precision, okay? I was almost the golf whisperer on Thursday. Again, almost doesn't count in golf. Darn it. Okay? It was a lip out for you. Is what You're happened. just poor tight. It's raining on him. It's windy now again at Shinnecock. We'll get you, get you a leaderboard update later on this hour. Matthew Collar is going to come in and dissect Vikings minicamp. Now that we have a month and a half until their next, uh, till the next time we get to see them on the field, we'll kind of go over what, what has been learned uh, more on Kirk Cousins and uh, his up and down minicamp. So we'll get Kyler in here. I have another thought for you and for Kyler. I know you guys have talked about this on Saturday Sports Talk, the Miguel Sano situation. I think, so it was obvious he had to go down. It was just like, I don't think anyone's even debating it. Miguel Sano's not even debating it based on his comments yesterday. They love me. But even with that, there was a way to handle this and there was a way not to handle this. And I think the Twins handled this in a few specific ways in in, in a in a way that preserves the relationship. Let's let's talk about this when we come back. Uh, we'll get into some Vikings talk. Write that down, predictions at the top of the hour. Chris Singleton from ESPN Radio on baseball and twins and Sano at 1130. And Doogie with a scoop on this game show Friday. Mackie and Judd. Chris Lindahl has changed the game, and he's been changing the game for a number of years, the real estate game here in the Twin Cities. And now that Chris and his team have broken off, on their own, no parent company. It's now Chris Lindahl Real Estate. They have freedom to innovate even more and even more quickly. It's the same great team. It's the same great innovation. And it's the same generosity in giving back to the community. And it's also the same large chunks of money that you get to make on the sale of your home and the sale of your condo when you work with the Chris Lindahl team. It's just a different name now, Chris Lindahl Real Estate. Uh, the real estate brokerage is here, and they've declared their innovation independence. You can find out more about this monumental announcement at chrislindahl.com. That's Chris with a K. Also, if you want to take advantage of a free listing side commission giveaway, you can go to chrislindahl.com. That's Chris with a K. Or the number is 763-401-SOLD. I've worked with these guys a year and a half ago. It was the best decision I've made. 763-401-SOLD. Mackie and Judd are back. Gentlemen, the moment has finally arrived. On 1500 ESPN. Ah, all right, silence. Silence, everybody. Collar, be quiet. Tiger Woods standing over. You stop. A par putt here at 17. It's very important here. This is to preserve his plus seven score for the <laughs> this, tournament. This used to be important. He's only 10 off the lead right now. This is to stay within 10 strokes of the lead. Look at that. Dead center cut right there. A little two-footer. So he center cut. That's a tougher putt over, than huh? it looks like. Okay. That green looks great. 
Yeah, turn your microphone on. Oh, is yeah. your microphone that's on? There you go. That's, that's me. Okay. Yeah, Sorry. That, that green looks awesome. The course is uh, just playing really well for everybody. Yeah. You don't golf really. Well, you golfed at the Vikings media thing, right? Yeah, I used to golf a lot. It was my goal one summer to be able to break 90, and I had an 88 one day. And that was it? And that was it. You I walked just, off? Like, oh, was really? You walked off like yeah. Joe Namath yep. wagging his finger that in was the, my goal. the tunnel? It was like, all right. So I had like a par three course that was near my house, so I went over every day and practiced, mm-hmm. and then would you know get together with a buddy at least once a week and go out there. And played it legit, no kicking it out from behind the trees, no just dropping it and saying, oh, I lost it, whoops. But, like, actually taking yeah, all the penalties. Sure. And once I broke 90, I was like, that's it for me. Wow. Yep, you're not, you're the, not saying you got 88 thing. on the par 3 course, right? No, no, no. I mean, on the, real, on the real course. There it is. All right. Yep. <laughs> so I remember some of the things that I tried to learn while improving, but you just don't have the feel unless you play a lot. And that was the biggest thing is, like, moving here – taking a job that you really can't be away for like four hours because stuff happens I'm all just the time. excuses right now. And also it's like, Listen, you know, Adam Schefter, expensive. Adam Schefter just brings all four of his phones yeah. in the golf yeah. cart, turns the volume up, okay? Got the laptop, just set <laughs> just up. Just have the Zim then, phone with yeah. you and you'll be fine. The Zim phone? But, uh, I mean, <laughs> Call I, her Zim. I did enjoy it, uh, but our group at the Vikings tournament, uh, it was a rough day. They started us on the hardest hole in the entire course. But everyone like, has to play that hole, right? But when you but when you haven't played for two years, really, and then it's oh, like okay. the hardest hole. I could I drove the confidence it. Confidence gets shaken. I drove it pretty well, but the problem is those like okay, well I drove it well, so it's two hundred and forty yards out there. Oh, we still have two hundred and eighty to go See, around a dog leg. So let me. I'm glad you brought this up because this fairway. is. The, I blame I blame the USGA. Clearly, yesterday the first hole was the hardest hole on the course, and Tiger triple bogeyed it. Why? Like some of these guys get to start on ten. I thought that was unfair. Start them off Don't on the third hole. And Tiger. Don't even around. get them started. Um, we'll do a leaderboard update later. I want to run something by you guys. We'll get into football the second half of this hour. But I know you guys have talked on Saturday Sports Talk about Miguel Sano and how to handle this. And and Collar used to you used to be a minor league baseball play by play guy for a number of years. So you've been like you've been around baseball. I think with Sano's struggles, there's a lot of people, fans, media, who are just ready. You got to punish him. You just got to. He doesn't work hard. And he's hitting 200. You got to punish him. And and I guess I've said all along, especially since we heard Patrick Royce, who isn't just pulling this out of his rear end. He reported in the Star Tribune a few weeks ago, or at least sort of, sort of pontificated in a column that Sano has a fragile ego. If you were to just send him down as a punishment. You're going to lose him. And the response is, who cares? He deserves to be punished. But the end goal is results, not punishment. If you're trying to make Miguel Sano into this ferocious major league hitter who has a chance to make all-star games on a regular basis and be a Twins Hall of Famer, like just punishing him in the short term, well, maybe he snaps out of it at some point and remembers how poorly you handled the situation. And then as his stock is rising, he's not considering you long term, which sounds ridiculous right now, but you want to preserve that. And I read some quotes from him in the clubhouse after this news was spreading around. And he said, I'm not mad. I'm happy. They love me. And it seems like the twins made it about us together trying to help you as opposed to, hey, you're a clown show and we just can't have you up here. You need to go get you. need it, This is on you, buddy. We're going to send you down as punishment. I like the way they handled it. And I think it preserves Sano's ego. And it maintains the relationship long term if the stock rises again. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. When I look at this Sano situation, this feels like the last run at it, though. 
I mean, when it's come to him bouncing up and down, sometimes having success, sometimes having a lot of failure, the strikeouts, the struggles at third, we've seen him improve his play at third base and look pretty good over there. And then we've also seen him struggle immensely and not really put in the effort to playing that position that he could. And if he's even an average third baseman, he's an extremely valuable player. Mm-hmm. If he's a first baseman, he's not that valuable or, or a designated hitter. He's just really not that worth that much over the other guys you could get to mash at first base. You could put like one of your outfielder prospects at first base, right? Yeah. And he's younger yeah. and costs $500,000. I'm not paying 15 or $20 million. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at the slash line, because he doesn't get on base at a, an insane rate, I mean, he kind of looks like a Mark Reynolds or something, like a guy who can mash a bunch of home runs, but you could just kind of find. Yeah. I think Colorado, and I know it's Colorado, but I think they got like 30 home runs out of Mark Reynolds, and they picked him up on a minor league contract last year. That's kind of how you can find somebody at first base to stick over there, but how many third basemen could hit 30 home runs? There are only a handful of them. So, I mean, we've seen him show this potential to be this great player, and I think that's worth trying for. Instead of giving up on a guy or instead of trying the tough love with him, maybe for some guys that, that that's what's necessary, but for him it isn't. If this doesn't work, though, if you send him all the way down there and you cater to him and his needs like you wouldn't for almost anybody else, then I think it's over. If, the, if he comes back and he plays the rest of the season after, I don't know, a couple weeks or something, and they say, oh, he's in better shape and he's got his hit, hitting worked out and he's not swinging at everything now, he's good to go, and he hits 205 the rest of the way and strikes out every other at-bat, I think that that's, that would be the time to pull the shoot on him. Then. This is uh, incredibly calculated, I think, and it's it's very, very smart. Uh, but this starts with, with the fact that you, you don't want him to go to AAA because that is a, that is a league filled with bitter players who, are, who think that they're getting a raw deal and they might be getting called up, but then they get back, sent back down. And so the last thing that you want him to do is go to a place where a bitterness exists. So you get him to, to the fort where he can now go work out on a daily basis. He can get some at-bats, but more importantly, he can get both baseball and life coaching. And and the Falvey quote was was that with what they've done, he said, we can do a lot of things with the facility that we have there around strength and conditioning and the work that you can do from the side. And I really think that this is about, this is not about him playing in games. This is about trying as a last-ditch effort to get him to understand the importance of this entire venture of playing pro baseball. Well, it's, game, games are going to be important, too, Surely though, because the guy but, can't make contact. But. But, but, but it's also about getting him in batting cages. It's also about, I mean, that swing now has to, you've got to go back and say, okay, what went wrong there? You had a time. In 2015, you came up and you struck out a lot. But you recognize pitches. You don't now. So I, I really think that this is a deconstruction of him, partially as a person, but as a player, too, to reconstruct him. And I would not be surprised if he, he's not back till September. I would not be shocked if he's not back until 2019. Here's something. Yeah, that wouldn't. Would not be shocked I, I think that. he play, I think they want to test him out. They're going to want to test him out in the major leagues this season. So I, I, would, I would be pretty shocked if he didn't play in the major leagues until 2019 because it just like you don't want to send a guy down and then unless it just goes completely haywire down there and he's not working and then and then it gets more into a punishment phase like okay we we're working with you but now you have no interest in in you know playing along here but if you go back this is another interesting tentacle to this so he's 25 years old and he was signed by the twins when he was 16 years old and started playing in 
I believe the Dominican Academy. Then he was in. Then he was in the Gulf Coast League as a as an eighteen year old. This is the first time he's ever really failed at baseball. When he was seventeen years old in rookie league and in one of their, it, it was the uh, Dominican Summer League. He batted three oh seven, got on base with a three eighty clip. This is a seventeen year old kid. Then he goes to the Gulf Coast League as an 18-year-old, slugs 637. The next two years as he climbing the ladder, A-ball, double-A, 32 bombs, 114 ribs, 35 bombs, 103 RBIs, OPS of 1,000, like every step of the way. In the last couple of years, you could blame injuries a little bit. When he was on the field, he was hitting bombs, and he was drawing walks, and he was striking out, but it wasn't a failure. This is a failure. This is a 200-hitter who's presumably healthy enough to be on the field, and it's the first time in almost a decade of playing professional baseball that you can look at him and he can look in the mirror and say, I can't get a hit off Major League Pitching. And so from a managerial standpoint or front office standpoint, then it is smart to try something a little different from him. What works for you might not work for some other guy, and maybe we can break you down and build you back up. But with this move, though, it does scream panic it does scream this could be over soon i mean i remember with uh when i was doing minor league baseball our team was with the st louis cardinals and so cardinals people would be coming and going and that was around the time that they traded colby rasmus Mm. and people on the internet flipped out how are they trading this guy with so much talent for edwin jackson this is unbelievable but what everyone was saying behind the scenes is like this guy's not going to get better because he's a jackass yeah. like it's that simple that's he's why not... he's been with like four teams right exactly mm-hmm. and he's never really had success he's outrageously talented he's got great range he's got a good arm he can hit homers he can steal bases i mean rasmus is like a five-tool prospect and he never became anywhere close to what he was supposed to mm-hmm. and showed potential but it was really just on him and what was upstairs and with Sano I think if you were gonna ask me what are the odds that this works it'd be pretty darn low and if it doesn't I mean the the thing with Rasmus getting rid of him is that he still had value at that time so when I see the uh, people asking to trade him well what this does right here (laughs) if there was any value left sending him to single a go that just goes poof so it better work, or you are just going to be completely out of eight years that you poured into this guy hoping that he would be an all-star. And once something like this happens, the odds of a guy bouncing back and becoming the player he's supposed to be, I mean, they go way, way down. So, I mean, maybe it works. I think it's a great Hail Mary to take. But when you look at the person here, Miguel Sano, and how he's handled being a Major League Baseball player, it doesn't. there's nothing there that indicates that he would just go down. And maybe for a time he'll take it seriously. Seriously, but in terms of sustainability of this and how long it's going to be that he could be a star in Major League Baseball, the odds are not great when a guy has to go through this. And it's not just a slump like Brian Dozier went through a few years ago. I mean, it's way more than just, oh, the guy's not hitting and he's trying to work it out. It's the guy can't stay in shape. The guy is accused of something in the offseason. It's like one thing after another. And when mm-hmm. these things pile up, you're like, you're not, it's not just one hurdle to right. get over. It's not just, like, oh, he's got to just improve his stride. His, like, it's his, a entire, his entire approach to life right now is wrong. It's that simple. His entire approach, off the field, on the field. He is a man who, in his body, has tremendous potential to be a great baseball player. But but how he approaches everything right now has to be rethought or it's, going to, it's not going to work out. And I, and I guess the question that you would end up asking yourself is, 
did you know at some point, even when he was playing well, that the wheels were going to come off this bus? And should you have traded him then and made that decision then? Because I, I think overall with this management from Felvey and Levine, I, they've done a great job in terms of who they've brought in and in terms of where the prospect system stands and, and how many guys could be coming up over the next few years, the overall direction, even though they've sputtered this year, I think the outlook is very positive. So they've done a good job from that standpoint. But when it comes to, did you bail on things at the right time? Like Brian Dozier's got a 310 on base percentage now and he's slugging under 400. Like, you know, you know two off seasons ago, he hit 40 home runs, and he was never going to have a higher value than that, and we yeah. knew it, and they didn't trade him. Yeah, well, they uh, two things off that, I think, because this is their second year, I started to defend them in that regard. They were desperately trying to trade Dozier two winters ago, and presumably the best offer, the offer that went public, was the Jose DeLeon for Brian Dozier offer. And Jose DeLeon's a great pitching prospect, but lacks in command, was on the verge of Tommy John surgery, and if that was really the only meaningful offer, it means other teams were looking at it saying, I don't know about Brian Dozier. And on Sano, I think when you when you have a player that's, that's that hyped and that talented, and this is your first year as mm-hmm. overseers of the organization, and this dude is one of the best hitters in baseball in the first half of the year, and he's an all-star, breaking yeah. out at age 24. Okay, then the second half and injuries come around. I think the, the point of... Would you have traded him or not? Would have been this past winter, and they tried, and they thought they shopped him. They, his name popped up. Yeah, yeah, his name popped up. Maybe even in the Chris Archer stuff. Uh, so it wasn't that they weren't shopping him, but that's a hard spot because you're thinking, man, in the first half he kind of broke out there and he mm-hmm. had about 20 home runs and he and he was playing third base in the All Star game. Uh, let's take another run at this one more year and probably not envisioning that the wheels would fall off to this degree and now they're left with zero value. I think from that standpoint, what you saw from him was he put in the effort to be a good third baseman last year, but then that deteriorated with his weight. I mean, he must have put on 20, 30 pounds during the season yeah, dude, alone. He, he's 100 pounds, 80 to 100 pounds heavier than Manny Machado. I mean, and also Nolan Arenado, who's probably the best defensive third baseman. He's 80 pounds heavier than... Start, starting today, they will, I bet, the next time you see him, it'll be 30 pounds at least gone. Yeah. So I was, and if it's not, it's a huge just problem. Just thinking about from last year of how he sh- kind of showed you who he was a little bit. of Like, he's got all this talent, he can hit all these home runs, and he could play third base if he could keep the weight off and if he continued to put in that sort of effort. But those things didn't really happen. So the third base play early on was like, oh, look, he can play. And then it just went away, and the weight packed on. And everything else happened. That might have been the point where you had some questions about him. I mean, last year they're in contention. So I'm not saying that you trade your guy with 21 home runs while you're in contention. But when we did go into this offseason, if there's any time they'll look back, I wouldn't have traded him either. But I'm saying if there's one time we'll look back and go, ah, maybe you missed your shot to get something out of him. And maybe he did show you who he was really going to be. Because I don't think that he ever becomes the Major League Baseball player that he should have been. When he fell down at third base, I said to myself, this ain't going to be good. <laughs> a, a big league ball player gets the ball at third base and falls down. Q tweets about Judd's jump shot right now, by the way. That's the problem. Hey, he's he's paid to play <laughs> baseball. I, 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 I agree. Not. Hey, I agree. you know, I've been finding these clips of guys like throwing out first pitches or taking Obi. golf swings or My whatever else. Like, 
Even the greatest athletes, Latavius Murray's golf swing was an abomination. Stefan Diggs' batting cage swing exactly. was a disaster. If you don't practice anything at all, even if you're a great athlete, you might end up looking really bad. Even if you're a great sports takes delivery man. <laughs> Ovi and Possible I. Possible your jump shot. He's in a pod. That's what we are. Uh, Collar's hanging out. All right, let's recap Vikings minicamp. Talk more about Kirk Cousins and his follow-up to a bad first day of minicamp. 651-646-8255 TCL Broadcast Studios. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. It's one of the funniest things that ever happened in sports. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. He did a few things out there today that, that unless you knew he did, you would have no idea he did in terms of changing the protection, in terms of using a, a unique cadence to help us identify uh, the defensive front, the defensive coverage, all those things, the blitz periods. I mean, our defense was bringing the heat pretty good today. So um, he did some subtle things that tells you that he's really understanding the little intricacies of what we're trying to accomplish. All right, was uh, was the rest of minicamp as much of a disaster? We had you on yesterday and said he, he, Kirk Cousins calmed it down a little bit. That's good. I, sorry. The defense was bringing the heat today. It's like, come on, John. In minicamp. In minicamp. minicamp. I call yeah, him Flip, br- by the way. Bringing the heat. I just call I'm him not, Flip I'm not now. comfortable I'm with Flip. It. I agree with. I'm Colin. not even from here, but I'm not comfortable yeah, calling why, him Flip. Why are we doing that? Like, why it's is this? Ha- thing? It's the difference between basketball and football. I'm fine with it. But it's no. It's Flip Saunders is a legendary sports figure. Sure. Rest in peace. There's no disrespect. He's nude. Like, first of all, he hasn't even coached in a game for the Vikings yet. For God's sake, like, we're going to give him the same nickname as a legendary like, figure. I get it from Mike Zimmer's standpoint. He just calls him whatever. And, and maybe he doesn't think hey, about you. it. Yeah, Get over right. here. I mean, it's surprising that I don't he, like your offense. Yeah, fans and media, let's pump the brakes on it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as far as like media asking a question, though, I'm not going to be like, you hey, like so flip? Coach Flip said this. Like, oh, don't say Coach. Uh, no, just call him yeah, Flip. Well, I never, I never say Coach anyway. Yes, but, which you shouldn't. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to say Flip. Though I might say Zim for Zimmer because everyone calls him Zim, but I'm not going to say flip because it just feels weird. So anyway, what was the question? <laughs> was Kirk Cousins a train wreck yesterday or was he okay? <laughs> uh, he was okay, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, al- I'm always like, I always kind of go to say something and then I'm like, ah, shorts. No chads, sure. you know. But um, when it, it, I think it was really evident during this time that the defense was number one in the NFL last year and knows everything that they're supposed to do all the time because it's all the same players. And the quarterback is brand new with a brand new offensive coordinator and brand new wide receivers. And it showed, especially in the red zone. And the one thing that John Filippo is going to have to improve with Kirk Cousins is how he performs in the red zone. Because last year, I thought Pat Shermer was a downright genius in the red zone. I mean, he was dialing up all sorts of different misdirection things, little trick plays or whatever. He found ways to get Jarek McKinnon the ball, and he found uh, ways to have Latavius Murray score eight touchdowns, which helps because he's probably better at that uh, than Matt Asiata was. And the offensive line was better, too. All that helped. And I thought the quarterback played a big role in it last year. That Case Keenum was fantastic when it got into the red zone. And he, he executed extremely well. And was accurate in the red zone. He didn't have a monster arm. And when it came to throwing 25 yards down the field, that wasn't what you wanted Case Keenum to do necessarily. But when it came to making the right read, executing the right play, he was very good at that inside the 20. And Cousins, over his history, he really hasn't been. 
So I guess we'll we'll find out as we go along if that's a trend we see throughout training camp that they can't get the ball in the end zone. And there's always this little delay with Cousins. And you see it on tape in Washington in some games, and you see it in camp already, where it's like if that first thing that he posed to read isn't there, then there's this hesitation and there's mm. this extra moment where as, oh, it, no, as, not, yeah. as watchers owe football, yep. we sit there and go, ah, that was when you're supposed to throw it. That's yep. when you're supposed to throw it. And with... What usually happens is if that moment happens with Case Keenum, then he's rolling out and he's going to find somebody on on the roll or Teddy Bridgewater, same way. And with Sam Bradford, he would always get rid of it at that moment. It was like, first read isn't there. All right, check down or whatever it might be. And with Cousins, there's always that one tick of hesitation and they're going to have to try to work that out. And I think that's part of the work faster. It's not just the pace, but it's also get from that first read to that second read to that third read a little bit faster and be able to make those decisions. But these are some of the criticisms of him throughout his career and you could see him out in the practice field. How much do you think that the personnel here is going to help him too, though? When you have Thielen at your disposal and Diggs and a tight end who I don't think is a great player, but he's he's good. He's 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 solid. And now you've got Dalvin Cook. How much does that change the dynamic when your personnel around you is is pretty damn good? So one thing about that, Dalvin Cook is the difference maker here. But the 2016 Washington Football Club on offense, in terms of weapons, was better than this year's. Minnesota Vikings, because they had a Hall of Fame left tackle in Trent Williams, and they had other good offensive linemen as well, some guys who were top picks. And they had Deshaun Jackson, one of the best deep threats of our time. Pierre Garçon, to me, is the most underrated, like, really great good. route runner. He's like your Diggs or Thielen. He's also right? excellent in the red zone, too. Like He's just a real, which the Vikings have two of those guys, too. But. He's he's. Terrific. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to enjoy working with him, I think. And then they had one of the best pass-catching tight ends in the league, a deep-threat tight end in Jordan Reed. And they had a really good running game that year. Surprisingly enough, they averaged four and a half yards a carry with one of the better receiving running backs, Chris Thompson. And, and so that offense was more stacked than this one, and he performed really well. That was one of his better seasons and his highest pro football focus season. But I think what you saw... Last year was when some of those things went away, then his play dropped significantly. So what you're going to have to have is everything click into place. And we know that Thielen and Diggs are going to be good. And we know that Delvin Cook is going to be good if he comes back to 100%, where I ask the question is, what's going to go on up front? I think the left side is okay, but you really wonder if the right side is going to protect him as well as he's needed to be protected in the past. Isn't it fair to say, the more I process this six months after or five months after free agency, it wasn't so much that the Vikings gambled on Kirk Cousins or or put a huge bet on Kirk Cousins, which they did. I, I, I'm debating the semantics of it. I think they hedged on Case Keenum's sustainability. I think they hedged on this year-to-year, when, when they have a ready-made Super Bowl-caliber defense and a great coach and they have weapons, I think it was more of a hedge on this year-to-year uncertainty. Teddy Bridgewater's leg and Case Keenum having one one good year out of six, and they said yep. it is a bet on Kirk Cousins, but it's a hedge on all these other things that we just don't trust to keep panning out for us. That's right. If you took, so let's say you had 10 options at quarterback. Uh, Tyrod Taylor ends up with Cleveland. One other option might have been to draft Lamar Jackson. He was uh, on the board, too. So let's say you have 10 different options, and K- Kirk Cousins is in there. 
Kirk Cousins is the safest option in terms of how well you can predict what you have. Mm -hmm. There are other options that could result in higher yields of quarterback play or maybe maybe wins. Lamar Jackson is the number one. Like this guy, he's uh, you know uh, could bust, then it might not work. But he's also so absurdly talented that he could be one of the best quarterbacks to ever play. So they weren't really in the upside business this offseason. They were in the stability business, mm-hmm. right? That's exactly right. And with Teddy Bridgewater, like I think Teddy Bridgewater is a better quarterback than Kirk Cousins. It's not by a wide, wide margin, but the ceiling there is a little bit higher. He's a little bit younger. He would have been cheaper, and maybe you could have signed other people to fill around. But there's huge risk that goes along with that. And Case Keenum, there are some things I really, really like about Case Keenum, how he got along with the team, how he led the team, his rapport with Pat Shermer. And, you know, obviously Shermer is gone, but if he put up the same season he did last year, you're probably 13 and three again. Mm, right. That was a great season, but there's also a pretty high chance that that doesn't happen. But what I find to be uh, what's going to play out here, and I'm dying to see throughout the course of this year now, is where, so you went and said Cousins is the safest bet. Cousins has done well. We think he can be the the quarterback piece to a Super Bowl winning contending team. Now, what's interesting is you've also taken Cousins, though, out, out of this, I think I can, I think I can, I'm going to prove you wrong mode, which he was in essentially in his entire time in Washington, and you've plopped him into three years, $84 million guaranteed, you go do it. And mm-hmm. and by the way, if you say, do you like that? The response might be, no, you got to do better. <laughs> You got now because so it takes him as a human, it takes him out of an element that he was comfortable in and trying to prove people wrong to. No, we expect this. There is definitely going to be some adjustment that's required with Cousins. And it's hard to get a feel for who he is really because with those other guys, one thing that was really nice about covering Case Keenum and Teddy Bridgewater is how authentic they were. It was just like, this is you, man. Like, Kirk Cousins is a mannequin. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. And, and I don't, whatever, and I'm I don't, fine with I don't him, blame him for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I like in in terms of how people get ripped apart for press conferences and everything like that. I don't blame him for standing in front of the mirror and practicing the answers as a as compared to the other guys. But at the same time, it's like hard for me to tell how is this guy going to react to this or that, or how is he going to deal with this type of pressure. The thing about Bridgewater and Keenum was both of those guys in terms of who they were. They maximized every ounce of talent, but they also had this sort of gamerness to them. They had this, the pressure doesn't really affect me to them. I mean, there was something special about both of those people that you could see even when you talk to them. And with Cousins, it's like, I know all the things about what he does off the field to be in great shape and to get everything out of every ounce of talent that he had. A fourth-round pick who's now going to make $84 million. It's really incredible and says something about him there. But in terms of how's he going to handle pressure? How, how's he going to handle criticism? How's he going to handle wide receivers? I mean, we only got this little glimpse, but I don't know, on a daily basis, how that's going to work. I mean, those guys, Keenum and Bridgewater, they weren't just... They weren't just like good leaders because that can kind of be like a wide definition. They were friends to these wide receivers. I mean, they had like these great relationships with the people there, and that helped maximize what they were able to do when they were here. And if Cousins struggles with that part of it, if he struggles with, you know, a couple of losses that he wants to pin on somebody else and not himself, 
Well, it's that's not really going to go over very well when he got paid what he got paid. Because in Washington, it was very much like... <clears throat> Typical uh, Dan Snyder runs this team. Yeah. Uh, the defense isn't very good. You always had that built-in. A lot of scapegoats. Right. A lot it, of, wasn't, yep. it wasn't actually his fault is always what came up. If he doesn't win, it's his fault. Period. End of story. And I, I think, don't care if the defense is 15th in the league. It's your fault. And I think he's fine with that. We'll, it seems like he knows what he signed up for, and we'll we'll find out. Let's talk more about Dalvin Cook's road back here and, and where he stands. Matthew Collar hanging out with us. Purple Podcast, 1500ESPN.com. It's Mackie and Judd. Now, back to Mackie and Judd. I'm ready! Live from the TCL Broadcast Studios on 1500 ESPN. 1500 ESPN has your chance to win your way into the X Games. Check out the 1500 ESPN stream player and listen on air for ticket giveaways. X Games in Minneapolis returns to U.S. Bank Stadium July 19th through the 22nd, featuring competition from the greatest action sports athletes, musical performances by Cascade, Brother Ali, Ice Cube, and Zed, plus X-Fest and the X-Fest Interactive Village. More details at 1500ESPN.com. Keyword events. Thank you, Dave. Write that down. Predictions here in about 10 minutes. Doogie with a scoop in the noon hour. Chris Singleton on the Miguel Sano demotion around 1130. Uh, but Matthew Collar's in here recapping Vikings minicamp. And you have a story on 1500ESPN.com about Dalvin Cook and his journey back from the ACL injury. So uh, why don't you, I, there's a couple interesting anecdotes. I, I like the relationship between him and the running backs coach as one of the anecdotes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, wherever you want to go with this, Dalvin Cook's journey back and, and where it kind of stands right now. Well, first of all, it stands in a great place with the fact that he was able to participate in all of mandatory minicamp. Uh, and a little bit of OTAs because they did not expect him back until training camp. Their mm-hmm. trainer, Eric Sugarman, told us that during offseason workouts. He said, yeah, he'll be back for training camp. He's on good, a good course. But to have him back this early, he's one of the few players that when you ask Mike Zimmer a question about Delvin Cook, and this goes back to like last offseason, there isn't a bad word to be said. There isn't the, ah, but he's still got to work on blank or whatever it might be. It's this guy's ridiculously good. I, I, it's it, You can read Zimmer so well because he just tells you what he thinks. Mm-hmm. So with Laquan Treadwell the other day, he's like, yeah, he's been pretty good, but, you know, he ran a wrong route. So you know, he's always going to have that whatever. With Delvin Cook, you could tell the impression that he's made on Zimmer. And a big part of Cook assimilating himself into the team, into the NFL, has been his running back coach, Kennedy Palomalu who's a really unique guy. He's related to Troy Palomalu. He's originally from Samoa. And he takes the approach of trying to relate as best he can on a personal level to the players. So you kind of have the big bad wolf head coach, but then you have the other guy who says that he wants to be in their weddings, you know, is what Kennedy Palomalu said. And and I, I think that he earned Delvin Cook's trust. And for a guy that came from a really tough part of Miami and and had a really rough upbringing and some troubles in college, to have someone that he could trust that he's working closely with on a daily basis has been a huge deal for him, not only last year getting here, but also throughout his recovery. And if he gets back to where he was, which he should from this ACL injury, what you have is one of the five or six most talented running backs in the entire NFL. Mm-hmm. Anthony Barr, sir. Uh, I, I saw your your uh, item on the website yesterday that they're actually starting to move him around a bit more. I think if they're going to pay him, I think it's absolutely a necessity that he lines up in as many different places as he possibly can. And Barr said that he's been taking 10 minutes a day to work against 
offensive lineman like a defensive end would. Or uh, even sometimes he's rushed up the middle. You've seen that in trying to beat guards on rushes up the middle. I think that he has the talent. He's one of the very few guys who can play inside linebacker but also be an edge rusher with his build. I mean, there are too many inside linebackers who are six foot five. And last year they rushed him 115 times, about 10% of the snaps. I think they could increase that this year and make him part of a rotation so he would move to edge rusher and or defensive end and you would have Everson Griffin get a, get a break. And he For, needs one this year. Yeah, he does. For an entire series. I yeah. mean, I think Barr is good enough where if it, especially if you are up in a game, let's say you're up two touchdowns and you know that other team's going to have to be throwing to try and catch up. Well, let's give Everson Griffin a, a couple of series off and have Anthony Barr come in. And now somebody else is going to have to emerge as a linebacker there if you're going to do that. Maybe it's Devontae Downs, the guy they drafted in the seventh round, or uh, Ben Gideon did a really nice job last year, mostly as a run stuffer. Maybe it's him who fills in there. Or maybe they go with some sort of dime package where Eric Hendricks is the only linebacker and they get Mike Hughes out there. Or they have Terrence Newman. This could be a great option where you've got Sandeo and Harrison Smith, and Terrence Newman, Harrison Smith can play linebacker. Like He's that good. We've seen him come up. So there, it, it sort of opens the door for many different options. And one of the things that Zimmer, over his career, and why he's still here, has done so well with, is just adapting. And I think he looks at last year with that Eagles game and says there are probably a few things that I could do better in certain situations and different looks that I could give that team. And uh, I think that, that we will see some changes, and maybe it starts with Barr yeah. playing at defensive end. I love that deep football talk. Football. I faded out there because Tiger Woods is uh, <laughs> Let it go, man. Double, why why, double are, you, why are you doing this to yourself? I personal. had this it's with like, um, David Cohn. Remember David Cohn? You had an um, unhealthy obsession with wanting to well, root for him? Um when he like came back with the Mets, I think. Mm-hmm. I liked him so was that much. When he was in in the bullpen exposing himself no that was really early on with the Mets uh but like when he he was like making a comeback or he was really old and wasn't any yeah. good anymore but I had liked him so much when he was in his prime with Kansas City and then with the Yankees that I wanted him so badly to just like just have a great year mm-hmm. just like come back and and, and just g- give him five innings man and it didn't work out yeah. Yeah, he's only 12 off the lead right now. Find collar stuff at 1500ESPN.com, Purple Podcast, and uh, tomorrow morning, 10 to noon, Saturday morning sports talk. Write that down on predictions when we come back.